This is an ABC podcast. You know the joke, nothing in life is certain but death and taxes. Ha ha. But it's true, and if anything proved just how uncertain life is on a grand scale, surely it was the pandemic. And yet most of us struggle, to some degree, with uncertainty. Just think of any time you've had an exam, a big work event, an important health checkup, a tricky chat with a friend. I could literally go on and on. There is so much to be uncertain of, especially if you consider all the uncertain news we're inundated with from the wider world. People in the town of Forbes are being told to move to higher ground within the next 30 minutes. Ukraine is hoping for peace, but preparing for war. Rishi Sunak's the third tenant at number 10 Downing Street in the space of just two months. So if uncertainty is the only real certainty, why do we get so bent out of shape about it? We probably know in a really intellectual sense that we can't control everything. And we, we all kind of inherently know that things are largely out of our control. But there's something that happens to us in that emotional processing of that that actually feels really uncomfortable and really hard to bear. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, why uncertainty freaks us out and how to make peace with it. I've been thinking about uncertainty for a really long time because in an oncology space, which is where I primarily work, almost every conversation I have with someone is, I guess, fairly deeply in this space of uncertainty. And that might be you know, someone's just been diagnosed with something and it's turned their world upside down, or we might be dealing with issues around conceptualising end of life and other things. And so I guess what I noticed was that not only, you know, thinking particularly at the start of 2020, and even in relation to the bushfires, which had happened before that, I wasn't just having those conversations in my clinic room. I was also having those conversations with my colleagues or with, you know, people I might bump into socially. And it became really apparent to me that probably some of these pieces that work in this oncology space and in other health spaces probably transfer really nicely into how do we cope with stuff when our world does feel like it's being turned upside down. This is Tony Lindsay, a clinical psychologist who, as she mentioned, works primarily with cancer patients. In her book, The Certainty Myth, she takes the lessons she's learned working with that group and translates them for life in general. Do you think, do we all sort of live with the illusion that we have some sort of control over our lives and it takes something like sickness or a terrible experience to realize that was never so? Absolutely. Um, we, I guess it kind of helps us get up in the mornings, right? You know, if we wake up every day thinking, I have no idea what's going to happen to me today, we, we would struggle to do anything. And so we build these kind of systems around control in terms of, you know, we get up, we write our to-do list, we have our plan for the day, we go about our lives. Um, and it's one of the things that often when I meet people, they'll say to me, you know, I knew this stuff happened. I just never thought it would happen to me. And we, I think most of us live our lives in that space and it's not until we do bump into it mm. that our brain kind of has to go, hold on, this stuff does happen to me. How, how do I make sense of that? Can you unpack why we struggle with uncertainty? Because we know nothing is really guaranteed in this world. We know that intellectually, but we still struggle with it emotionally, as you've said. Can you unpack the reasons why? Yeah, so uncertainty is uncomfortable for us because, A, there's an evolutionary piece to it. Mm -hmm. You know, if I think about these, our ancestors kind of wandering around on a prairie or on a plane or wherever we were wandering, you know, if we saw a tiger coming towards us, you 
kind of want to know whether that thing's going to eat you or not. You're not going to just kind of go, you know what, we're just going to sit here and see what happens. Mm -hmm. There is definitely a preference for us in our environment to say this is good or bad or I'm okay or I'm not okay. But I think as well there is a piece for us around we like it when things go the way we want them to. (laughs) If I think about, you know, relationships are a really kind of common one, right, like where we will go into a relationship and we've got ideas about how that relationship will go. And what often happens is tension will show up in those relationships when things aren't going the way that we want them to. We see this kind of in workplaces and other things because we often have kind of ideas or preferences or kind of concepts about how we want to be in the world. And so when we start bumping into things that don't match those, that's actually really uncomfortable for us. And so what we tend to do is to try and make our world match the way that we want it to be. And of course, when we're dealing with kind of these big things and whether that's a pandemic or whether it's floods or whether it's climate change, it's really, really tough for us to put that world into a box. And so that's often where the struggle piece comes from. But Tony says many of the ways we try and build control in our lives are pretty harmless, even helpful, like to-do lists. Pretty much everyone writes a to-do list, you know, at some stage in their lives. And the actual process of writing the list is much more helpful than whether you actually do what's on the (laughs) list. And so, you know, there's something really helpful about that process. But I guess when that control stuff starts to become much more challenging, and we definitely saw this during some of the pandemic stuff, is that people get really um, stuck into patterns of behaviour or, you know, cutting pieces of their life. And so their lives end up getting really, really small and very control-driven. And that, Mm. that stuff becomes... I guess, a bit more challenging to manage in an everyday life. And when you're in that space, Tony says the result is often anxiety. By and large, anxiety is the thing that shows up way more than any other. You do get, sometimes that will show up as low mood and worries for people, but in my experience, um, anxiety is definitely the thing that shows up more. Anxiety is a bit of a tricky cat. So anxiety will show up, but then you also get lots of other things like lack of sleep, Mm. changes in appetite, generally feeling a bit kind of uncomfortable in your body, you know, all of those pieces that accompany anxiety. Why do anxiety and uncertainty go hand in hand? I guess kind of thinking about what's this uncertainty mean? Because, you know, if you think to that idea of we like things to be black and white or dichotomous, the kind of uncertainty sits in the grey space. And one of the ways that our brain responds to kind of uncertainty or that grey or the unknowing is that our brain tries to problem solve. Our brain will go, okay, we need to come up with a million different ways that we can solve this. And so that process by us overthinking and overanalyzing and coming up with a million different solutions, that process is actually very much anxiety. And that's Mm. what our brain's doing when we're anxious. And so, you know, I think about some of my patients and I'll use an example around facing end of life, there's no answers in that space. And so what what happens is people find themselves getting really, really caught up, not only in the big stuff around worrying about what's going to happen to them and what happens next and all of those questions that none of us can have an answer to, but they also get really caught up in the smaller kind of things because that mechanism is being activated. So they might find that decisions about, you know, what do I have for dinner or Um, how do I engage with my family or what shoes do I put on today also become equally fraught with that same kind of overthinking and overanalysis. If you find yourself in that space, although perhaps not because of a cancer diagnosis, but some other issue causing uncertainty, one thing that can help is getting a handle on your anxiety story. So 
One of the things that we know is that anxiety is often something that starts when we're quite young. So when I've worked in clinics where we've had anxious kids turn up, often those patterns look very similar to the adults in their worlds and their anxious patterns. So, you know, young people pick up on anxiety and children pick up on anxiety quite early in life. And what happens is that the way that we frame kind of anxiety in our world tends to follow us. And so it can be really helpful to understand, okay, where's this anxiety coming from? You know, how did I learn about anxiety? What's the kind of context by which when anxiety shows up, what am I doing with it? Because anxiety kind of thrives in this space of mystery. Mm. So it's hard for us to get to know anxiety. It's hard, it's hard for us to tolerate anxiety. But what we know is that actually when you start to name anxiety, you start to kind of understand how it works, then actually sometimes the kind of strength or power or the sense of strength and power that that thing has almost diminishes mm. a little bit. Can you give an example of an anxiety story, perhaps from an anecdote from one of your patients or your own? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's really common that most of us, when we go into a social kind of gathering, we'll have a story that shows up for us around, I'm not funny enough, I'm too funny, I made that wrong joke, I, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't have worn those shoes, you know, whatever version. And most of us will have something like that. But for some people, that story shows up in a really pervasive way. So when they're showing up to a social event, for instance, that dialogue will be accompanying them. It's like, oh, I can't believe you said that. What, how come you engage with that person in that way? Oh, they're going to think you're so stupid. And so one of the ways that if you can get to know that anxiety story and go, okay, I know that the second I show up to a party, this kind of anxiety guy on my shoulder is really going to start showing up. He's going to get really kind of verbal and tell me all of the things that I can't do. Now, we probably can't get rid of that guy exactly, but there's something really powerful in recognising that guy's there. Mm, yeah. And so sometimes just being able to name that, oh, that's the social anxiety showing up. What am I going to do with that? Do I make the choice to stay at home or do I say, you know what, I'm going to go to the party anyway. I like going to parties. I have a nice time sometimes. <laughs> and so that's kind of the utility of getting to know this. Like, what's your story about all of this? Here's the thing, though. Many of us, me included at times, try to avoid dealing head-on with uncertainty or anxiety or whatever it is we're feeling when things get hard. We can have a tendency to bury our heads in the sand, because that seems like an easier option. But it isn't really, because of what Tony calls the avoidance paradox. I sometimes think about this um, in terms of like waves on the ocean. You know, if you're bobbing around in the surf and a wave comes, you look at that wave and go, oh, that one looks a bit big. I'll wait till the next one. And then the next wave that comes is going to look even bigger. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so on and so forth. And someone just ends up bobbing around in the surf for a really long time. <laughs> but what then happens in that is the more we try and avoid things, often the worse our anxiety gets. And so, you know, if I think about some of the patients that I've seen over the years who suffer from agoraphobia, which is where they won't leave the house because the anxiety of leaving the house is so huge and so overwhelming. Those people don't start by not leaving the house. They start by going, this bad thing happened to me at work today. You know what? I'm going to call in sick tomorrow. Mm. And so they call in sick the next day and, they, and all of a sudden that anxiety goes away until the next night when they start thinking, oh, I've got to go to work tomorrow. That's right. I'll call in sick again. And then that anxiety kind of just gradually builds over time. And anxiety is a bit of a tricky cat. It doesn't just stick to one thing. It starts to move around. And so as we avoid anxiety more and more, the anxiety tends to grow and grow. And so 
one of the ways in managing this stuff is to actually flip that switch and go, okay, this anxiety showed up and that's cool, but what I need to do, I'm going to recognise the anxiety, but I'm also going to kind of work on some ways that I can tolerate it showing up. And what we know paradoxically is that when you let anxiety show up, it actually diminishes. But most people don't ever get the opportunity to find that out because they put themselves in a situation where they avoid it. What do you mean by that? So if we think about um, that example of the person who's avoiding going to work, what will happen is that their anxiety will peak around that time of going to work. But then probably what will happen is they'll get into the office, they'll get distracted, they'll have a conversation with someone and probably actually their anxiety will start to diminish. But what then happens is that we rarely, because being anxious is really uncomfortable, so we Mm. rarely put ourselves in a situation where we let that follow through. And so sometimes the main part of managing anxiety is actually learning to tolerate being anxious. And the problem with avoiding anxiety and having it turn up anyways is that it can morph into other feelings like loss or frustration or guilt. Because anxiety doesn't let you win because our brains aren't really wired that way. So say, for instance, in that social situation, if we make the decision not to go to the party because we're socially anxious, you can bet not that long after your guilt brain will turn up and go, dude, why didn't you go to the party? (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, so so with this stuff, we can't win. It sounds like a nightmarish merry-go-round of emotions. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I always think of, like, all of these little guys who are kind of walking around in our head who've all got opinions and they've all got ideas, and some of them are helpful. Yeah. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Dr. Tony Lindsay is a clinical psychologist and author of The Certainty Myth. How much is it the case that the anxiety and stress uncertainty generates is more taxing than the thing where uncertain will happen or not? Like, I'm thinking sort of from personal experience when my partner had cancer 10 years ago. We battled uncertainty during treatment, definitely, but it was at a certain point it sort of just became our reality and we were moving through it and we were dealing with it. But it was afterwards when he was finished treatment and we were spat back into normal life that we felt really uncertain about the future. Um, And it was extremely unnerving, almost scarier than when we knew he had cancer and he was getting treated for it. Is that a common sort of thing? Absolutely. I think one of the things that happens for us is that we often will overestimate how bad the uncertain thing will be and we underestimate our ability to cope with things when they show up. And so one of the things that, and I'll give an example of people at end of life because I think this kind of solidifies it a lot. The times when people are most anxious is not when they get the news that they've, you know, that they're approaching end of life. It's actually in the months before that Hmm. when they're not sure, you know, they know that something bad is happening, but they're not sure when that might happen. That's exactly the same as when, you know, when people finish treatment, most of the time during treatment, emotionally, people are actually absolutely you know, pretty okay. Yeah. You know, they'll be a bit anxious, they'll be a bit worried. Yeah. Absolutely. But they're managing pretty well. But what happens is when we take that safety net of treatment mm-hmm. out of out of the picture, that's actually when people's anxiety will spike because mm-hmm. then we're all of a sudden faced with this, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. Like for however long I've been doing treatment every week or whatever it might be. And so the other piece of that is that before that diagnosis, 
people didn't really connect with the knowledge that bad things could happen. Right. You know, they, they knew that it might, but they didn't think it would happen to them. And so then when they get to the end of treatment, there's often a space of going, oh, I'm, A, I don't know what to do with myself, but B, this bad thing happened once, maybe bad thing's going to happen again. Yeah. And that uncertainty is actually really, really tricky for people to manage. And what we tend to see, and there's actually in cancer world, this is called fear of cancer recurrence, mm-hmm. and there's a whole body of work around this stuff. Um, and that equally affects patients and the people around them. But what I, what we know to be true, and absolutely what I've seen in my clinic room over and over again, is that when that person actually gets the news that their cancer has returned, for instance, mm-hmm. which is the thing that they've been absolutely terrified about, yeah, usually something happens and that something is usually around okay that thing's happened now okay well I guess I need to get on and deal with it and that doesn't mean that they're not upset or distressed or sad about that sure but there is definitely a shift so often that space in between is much much harder psychologically to think about and to sit with and you know I, I think a little bit about that in terms of the COVID stuff from my kind of observations of things people's anxiety was often highest before something had happened when we're in the midst of it and actually, when we had lots of cases in Australia and things, people were still anxious, sure, but they weren't anxious in the way that when we were watching that thing happen to other people. Right. Okay. Like in other parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if we think about what those anxiety levels felt like for all of us kind of early in 2020, that looked really different by the time we got to the end of 2021. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's totally true. And yeah, in, in terms of the cancer, um, we were we were totally knocked off guard with, yeah, what happened at the end, the uncertainty and the anxiety around that when we finished treatment. We did not expect that at all. No, absolutely. And, and you are absolutely not alone in that. That gets most people. And in terms of like the sort of anticipation uncertainty before the thing happens, that's that occurs beyond cancer and, and, and that kind of thing as well? Because I know there's research around like job uncertainty tends to have a bigger toll on what person's health than actually losing your job. It's the yeah. unknown that's scarier in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, there's there's a bit of a paradox in that, right? Because actually you would think that the time when something has happened is going to be the most stressful, but actually it rarely is. And, and this kind of comes back to that idea of we tend to under, you know, we we assume that when something terrible happens, we're not going to cope with it. You know, I often think about if I meet my patients, which I, of course, never can, but, you know, if I met them six months beforehand and said, hey, in six months' time, you're going to have a cancer diagnosis, <laughs> they would say to me, oh, never cope with that. How would, like, how will I manage that? That's ridiculous. But then, of course, when they show up, they just get on and do it. Mm. Um, and we see that happen over and over again in different parts of our worlds. So if you're struggling with uncertainty in your own life, whether that's a diagnosis or an exam, there are a few practical things you can work on. One is mindfulness. And I know you've probably heard that one before and maybe you're rolling your eyes, but there's a really simple way you can do this that you probably haven't considered. We know that most uncertainty is future-based. And so if we can really connect with what's happening in this moment or this hour, Um, and sometimes even this day, that allows us a space to be able to go, okay, what can I do in this moment? It's when we start getting kind of really future focused that we get really overwhelmed. And that stuff doesn't need to be complex. You know, there's obviously people who have capacity to do really in-depth mindfulness and other things, Mm. and that's awesome. Lots of people can't do that or don't have the time or the skill or the motivation to try and learn to do that. 
And so I'm always very much about let's do little things. You know, if you're listening to music, just tune in on the drums for a couple of seconds and what happens there. Wow. Or if you're, you know, if you're going for a walk, like, you know, counting your steps as you're walking or, um, you know, if there's a bird outside your window, just really listening to that bird. And you don't have to do this stuff for hours. I'm talking like 10, 20 seconds. It's just a bit of a circuit breaker to kind of bring you back into the, okay, right here and right now, things are okay. I'm okay. And even sometimes when those moments are hard, there's something really powerful about being able to kind of really reconnect with that. I love that, the listening to drums in particular of a song. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to totally try that. Yeah, totally. The drums work better than other instruments, particularly if you've got quite intricate drum work. Right. It's really, really, yeah, it's a really, really good way of getting really present. Amazing. So that's a quick and simple strategy. Longer term, learning to accept uncertainty can also be helpful. But there is a caveat to that. So I guess the first thing that I, I do want to say, because I think acceptance is such a loaded term, and I think for lots of people, you know, they get really caught up in, I should just accept things and it'll be fine. I, mm. I guess want to really highlight that being accepting of something doesn't mean that you have to be okay with it, or it doesn't mean you have to accept the thing. When I'm talking about acceptance, I'm talking about accepting the emotions around the thing. So for instance, if I think about, you know, my patient who might turn up with a really terrible diagnosis, there's no world in which they're going to go, you know what, I'm okay with that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, if I've just had a flood come through my house or if I'm really kind of concerned about the economic situation that I'm in and I might be facing redundancy, of course you're going to have an emotional response to that. And if you didn't, I would actually be more concerned. So in that processing of that, part of this acceptance piece is going, okay, so I know in the landscape of this, lots of emotions and lots of thoughts and lots of stuff is going to show up. Sadness or grief or anxiety or depression or um, lots of kind of thoughts about the future and uncertainty. We can't stop those thoughts, but actually it's okay that it's there and I'm going to do some work to make space for that. And so if you imagine, um, and there's a I guess an analogy that's used quite a lot within acceptance and commitment therapy is this idea of you're being in a struggle or in a tug of war with those thoughts and feelings. And so we often assume that the only way to manage that is to stay in the tug of war. But actually, one of the best things you can do is to recognise, okay, that thing that's there, that emotion, that hard stuff, that's not going anywhere. The uncertainty is going to keep showing up. Mm. So instead of staying in a fight with it, actually, maybe it makes sense for me to drop the rope. That thing hasn't changed. It's still there and I'm still here, mm. but I'm not struggling with it anymore. One of the other lessons you write that you've learned from your experiences with your patients is routine makes the world go round. Can you explain that and what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, one of the things that we are absolutely not very good at is sitting around and having too much time on our hands and having too much time to think. Because what happens is when we have too much time to think, our brain goes into overdrive and we end up with kind of anxiety or kind of mood stuff showing up. And so thinking about this idea of uncertainty, it's really important to point out that it's not about control. We don't have a routine so that we're in control of everything. But what we do have a routine to do is helps kind of frame our time. Because if we just look at these 
kind of open-ended spaces of time, it's really, really tough for us to A, make sense of it and B, do anything functional. Mm. And I spoke to a patient just this week and we were talking about what's kind of helping you at the moment. And he was clearly able to articulate, you know, it really helps me when I get up and have breakfast with my wife and daughter in the mornings. So, okay, cool. Well, let's make sure that happens. Because then he was like, I'm up and I'm moving. It doesn't matter if I need to have a nap later in the day. I've already done that thing. So we're not talking about really complex stuff here, right? Like this is usually kind of really manageable stuff. The psychological power and pull of a routine became clear to Tony a few years ago when she first started working with a patient who had very little time left to live. So I had a young patient who was really, really focused on doing her university exams. And this is absolutely not the exception in the face of what I do, in the sense that lots of people will have a version of this. But for her, she was so, so focused on, I need to get through my exams, I need to get stuff done. And actually what that was allowing her to do was to contain all of the bigness about what was happening to her. Mm -hmm. And so having that structure and that routine and that purpose, even though probably us, her kind of family, the people around her were going, dude, you don't need to be stressing about exams right now. she was then able to go, you know what, I'm going to show up and do this thing because it's really important to me. I need a sense of achievement. I need a sense of purpose. This this helps me be normal. And so, you know, that's obviously a pretty extreme example because most people aren't living their lives in that kind of dichotomous way. But I think mm. we can all kind of learn from that space of going, okay, what what's driving me here? You know, and if something really unexpected and really big happened tomorrow, would I be okay with how I'm showing up today? Was she able to sit her exams in the end? Yes, she did end up sitting some exams. I'm not sure what the results of the exams were, but she did end up sitting. um, She was uh, pretty spectacular in terms of her drive and her capacity. How old was she when she passed? Um, She would have been in her late teens. Wow. Gosh. That's how, do you know how long after sitting her exams? Uh, How long after she would have died? Um, Yeah. It wouldn't wouldn't have been a huge amount of time. It would have been within months. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's lessons like these about the power of a routine, of connecting to the present, of arriving at a place of acceptance of uncertainty that Tony says we can all adopt, whatever challenge we're facing. I guess probably the main thing that I would really like is for people to realise that it's okay for things not to be easy. It's okay for us to struggle a bit. It's okay for when difficult stuff happens for us to be anxious or worried or feel like we're spinning out of control. And I guess the flip side of that is being kind to themselves in that space. You know, sometimes when anxiety or other things show up, we can be really, really quick to criticise ourselves. But my experience by and large is that every person I meet is just doing the best they can. And sometimes people are doing spectacularly well and they don't recognise it. And so I guess I would like people to have a sense of, you know, A, there's stuff I can do with all of this. I don't I don't have to kind of lock myself away and make my world really, really small because I feel like I need to be in control of everything. But the flip side of that is when I am showing up and I am kind of engaging, and even if it does mean that I have a really terrible day, on those terrible days, I'm doing the best I can and it's okay. That's Tony Lindsay, clinical psychologist at the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse in Sydney and author of The Certainty Myth. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Thanks to producer Rose Kerr and sound engineer Russell Stapleton. 
I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. And just before we go, if you've been enjoying what you've been hearing on All in the Mind this year, feel free to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. We love hearing what you have to say, and it's handy information for new listeners. So thanks again, and I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.